we completely missed the user. We focused on functionality and not performance and experience. And so we had these providers who would scream at us about how their certified technology could do the things we said it needed to do, but it took 50 clicks and ruined their ability to have eye contact with their patient. Welcome to The Other 80. I'm Claudia Williams. This is a podcast about how we can build health in America beyond medical care. If you've been enjoying season two of the show, please share it with a friend. It's the best way to support us and our work. Today's guest is Jess Kahn. She's a partner at McKinsey specializing in state Medicaid and social service programs, public sector data, and technology. Before joining McKinsey, she led data and systems for Medicaid at CMS. I consider Jess a kind of kindred spirit. She and I share three loves, Medicaid, data, and Peace Corps. Please welcome Jess Kahn to The Other 80. There's something I always notice when I look at your Twitter handle, which is you call out that you're a data and tech policy wonk, but also there's a little love sign in Medicaid. Mm-hmm. And I like to bring the the love part of our work into the conversation. What do you love about Medicaid? What do I love about Medicaid? What is that Hubert Humphrey quote on the Humphrey Building in D.C. about judging a society by how we care for our children, our aged, our disabled? That's Medicaid, right? That is what Medi- that is Medicaid. It is people who are low-income, vulnerable, aged, elderly, children, pregnant women. Like it's the it's the safety net. First of all, second of all, I think Medicaid has long before it was trendy understood that it's a wider set of supports that are needed to achieve healthcare. You know, Medicaid has paid for supports in the home for people to have home and community-based services. Medicaid has paid for transportation. Medicaid has paid for supportive housing. Long before SUH was a thing, Medicaid understood the complexity of what it means to navigate the healthcare system when you are age, blind, disabled, low income, all of those things, it's that much harder. And so therefore always took a more expansive definition. Another one that I love is parent caretaker relative. Like what other health insurance program in the world acknowledges that parents and family members are actually caretakers and finds a way to not just compensate them, but integrate them into the care continuum and the provider continuum. Medicaid does. That's who cares for most of us, our our relatives and our family members. I think it's both a safety net and a pioneer. This is the beautiful lens on what's possible. This is such a human-centered, I think the word whole person's kind of been overused, but but truly looking at someone as a whole human being and how can we support them. We don't always achieve that through our policies, but I still feel like that, that light is shining. So let's move our focus to the states. And Medicaid is a federal state partnership. Your work also encompasses other state programs, public health, social, and human services. And let's go back to a time we all remember very well, which is the beginning of COVID 2020. COVID was a wake up call across so many different fronts of our lives. But I think in the work that we center on, which is 
state activities to improve health, leveraging data and technology. It was a really harsh wake-up call in many, many places where I think state leaders woke up and thought, oh, we didn't really have in place what we should have or what we even thought we did. And I'd I'd love for you to describe what that wake-up call looked like. What were some of the things that state leaders were suddenly scrambling to do or didn't have in place or overnight realized they needed? I think just the tools that people assumed were available, all of a sudden there was just a spotlight showing how inadequate they were um, and a crush to do that. I think there was also an immediate sort of scramble to understand um, how to continue access to services when people weren't able to go in person or couldn't get to where they used to go because buses weren't running, public transportation wasn't available, people were afraid to take an Uber, all of those sorts of things. And so there we saw this wonderful blooming of telehealth, right? Phoenix out of the ashes. Now we have telehealth and capacities in ways that hopefully will never get rolled back. And on the provider side, they weren't in their clinical office, and that's where they were permitted prior to COVID flexibilities on the regulations. That's where they were permitted to practice. Well, now they might have been in a tent in a COVID clinic out in a parking lot someplace also doing that. So we had to see a lot of relaxing and morphing of of the rules in order to meet people where they are, which, by the way, is kind of the thing we've been all advocating for for 20 years is meet people where they are until then people weren't willing to push down those walls. I know one of the things that came up pretty suddenly, especially once vaccines were available, is blindingly bright inequities around COVID prevalence, but also around vaccine access and and medication access and things like that. In my experience in California, that was particularly one of the places as people started to see those issues where they realized they didn't have enough data in their little box to even identify those issues, never mind have interventions, never mind see if the interventions were working. I'm curious where you saw some of those data gaps around the kinds of programs states were trying to put in place and what they were starting to do about that in those first couple of years of the pandemic. In order to really be able to drive equity, to your point, you really have to understand what you have and what you don't have. And it was a while before I saw states really leaning in on the analysis and the mashup of the data to support it. So to be able to look at by county or by zip code, you know, what the current rates were, how many providers were there providing vaccinations, what was their throughput capability? Because, you know, having a mass vax event is different than having a small clinic. Um, how many vaccines were being delivered? What's the social vulnerability index for that location? And how do you map all that out and say, wait a minute, we have a real unmet need here. We don't have enough providers. Or we don't have providers that could do enough throughput or they're not ordering enough vaccine. Like to actually facilitate all of that analysis and create some like red, green, yellow kind of charts that would allow state leaders to turn around and activate community members or we need more providers in this location or that location, or what's that ground game and get those partners involved. That was not an overnight task. Um, That is not a way any of them in public health in particular had looked at their data before with that level of turnaround, like on a daily basis to be able to react and move quickly. And then a lot of additional engagement. I mentioned counties, but also a lot of community-based partners, faith-based institutions, I mean, we saw states calling in National Guard. There was also all the private pharmacies then leaned in and small, some small independent pharmacy partners. So 
the amount of external engagement that needed to be coordinated was huge. This podcast really focuses on what I am generally calling whole person health models, which is integrating social and medical care. And we've seen many states take on efforts, some very, very substantial, some more limited. And we've talked to a lot of policymakers about the policy content about that, but have only glancingly touched on what data is needed to support now an approach to Medicaid where you care if somebody got SNAP or you want to identify who has a housing need or or these kinds of things. And I'd, I'd just love to have you talk through some of the layers of that question. What data sharing is needed? What technical capabilities are needed. Talk us through that. What, yeah. what what do states need to build? At the very center of a lot of the conversations I've been having for the past couple of years, where I feel like I'm a little bit of a marital counselor between Medicaid and public health or a translator, is just knowing that just con is just con. It's the identity management. But this this degree of confidence in knowing that this is one person who's accessing multiple programs is huge because that's the key to eventually lessening my burden in having to repeat myself and provide information again and again and again to the different programs. It lessens the burden of the programs having to ask my race and ethnicity. It lessens the provider having to ask me whether or not I've had the vaccine because they can just pull that information. So it's this, this master person index from a technical perspective to me sits at the base of that pyramid and holds it all up. But the barrier to it being used in Medicaid and in public health often is just the data sharing. So you can query me, but then you also have to give data back to me so that my master person index is now the richer for your interaction with me. Don't just query my system to find out whether this person had a vaccine. If you have data about them, like their most recent address or their most recent something, you have to feed that back in. So it requires a level of collaboration and governance that's very symbiotic. And, you know, I I speak as someone who spent 20 plus years in government. Symbiotic is not our jam. (laughs) Like living in (laughs) silos is more our jam. And so it's hard. It has to be a joint ownership of something, of that tool, of that pyramid. I think what you're talking about is potentially having a tool set, which is an infrastructure and set of tools to match records from different places that's shared across agencies at the state level, right? And and so that's not something that we typically do. Everyone wants the control that's given by doing it on their own, but the benefits of doing it together are so tremendous from an economic standpoint, from a, a leverage standpoint, from impact, all of it. But it'll be interesting maybe to bring on some other people later in the show that are doing more civic tech and how do you actually bring agencies together to share infrastructure. And you probably have examples of that. Well, so there's the organizational cultural aspects of that. And those are real. And I get that. People like to own things that they feel very dependent upon, right? It's a high risk to be dependent on something that you don't own and control, And government is extremely risk averse. So I get that. So there's the org stuff. There's some tech stuff too. How do you create those interfaces and do so in a way that meets every user, be they legacy or cutting edge? So how do you serve that spectrum of clients? There's also a funding thing there. How do you braid the funding and or how do the funders say, I'm sorry, I'm not paying for that again. You already have that in your state. 
and we will pay for you to augment it and to connect to it, but we're not paying for you to completely replicate it. So there's a little bit of funding, a little bit of funding policy, a little spine maybe that could happen um, on behalf of our uh, federal funding partners. But I also think if I were sitting in a governor's office that I would say, like, look at all the federal and state funding available to me. Why would I duplicate in places I don't need to? I want to be smart. I want to be efficient. And this is something I can do, whether it's to help a healthcare program or a Department of Labor or unemployment insurance. Like there's so many different programs that, that could benefit from this and not have to pay for redundant infrastructure. If you want to be whole person in Medicaid, like first you got to know who is in Medicaid and what other programs are they in with some degree of confidence. You have the master person index. You have a use case driven approach to where that overlap should be. Um, and then I think the last one is a little bit of policy. You know, we don't all define household the same way. At the federal level, this is the bane of many people's existence is the way that SNAP defines a household, the way that Medicaid defines a household, both for very good reasons, is different. But what that means is if you're trying to, as a state policy person, if you're looking back, you're trying to say, like, how many of my families are in these different programs? Well, wow, that's loaded because SNAP, it's everybody who lives in your home. Medicaid, it's everybody who you claim on your taxes. Those are two very different definitions. And so if you're a state policymaker, you're trying to think about whole person care. By the way, neither of those are defined by the person themselves, right? Those are both defined by the programs. If you ask the person themselves, they might have a totally different definition of who's in my family supports, right? It might be neither of those. Might be a cousin who lives down the street, you know, who comes in and brings me my food and helps me get dressed every day if I'm disabled. Like it could be very different. But in any case, I think this idea of looking for policy alignment, even if you can't change the federal policy, but you can rationalize it in a way from a data perspective that helps you understand where you do have overlap and you try and engage your consumers in a way that allows them to bring their definitions to the table. I think will get you a lot further than right now where states are focusing on uh, Medicaid unwinding, restarting of renewals. One of the things you touched on in the examples, both the COVID examples and the whole personal health examples, was Medicaid existing in a broader ecosystem and what that fact puts on Medicaid in terms of its behaviors, its policies, its infrastructure, its incentives. And one example, I think, we've seen in some states is the development and the fostering of a health data utility, which is generally a nonprofit that sits outside the state. And I'd love to have you describe what that model is and talk about what that model can offer and what it demands in terms of different ways of supporting it from a policy and funding perspective. I think this concept recognizes the significant state and federal investments over time that have been made in an infrastructure that is supported in this case, most cases by, you know, a nonprofit entity in ways that don't follow the patterns with how government engages with traditional vendors where you compete things and you need to recompete them over time. And they're not really under your umbrella and the way that we think of utilities in our country you know, they're regulated, they're autonomous, 
but they also are meant to provide a value at a population level, at a statewide level, right? We don't accept that there might not be electricity in certain parts of the state. And so if the state is invested in, in this case, health information exchange infrastructure to facilitate its its healthcare outcomes beyond just Medicaid, but in addition, mostly in the start Medicaid, it, it just doesn't make sense to throw that out every five to seven years and rebid it. And, and when you think about these uh, health data utilities as nonprofits that sit alongside government the way uh, other utilities do, they retain the investment, continue to bring that ROI. Often staff retention is higher, and so they have a lot of that history as well in support of the state. This is not the only instance where this happens. In the public health world, there are these public health institutes that have popped up around the country that are also nonprofit, that work very closely with state public health agencies and do a lot of the aligned work. And you, you don't see a whole lot of turnover in which entities provide that role because you actually need there to be continuity. That's part of the whole point is to not have to walk away from sunk costs, um, but to, to leverage the return on investment. I think there's a world for competition in, in technology and data for sure on the provider space and, and even in the government space where it makes sense. But, but part of the idea of these public data utilities, especially where the government sits on their board or helps be a part of their leadership, if they're contributing funding, they have some degree of ownership. In many of these states, there's legislation that reinforces this. So there's accountability to government. They're just not off doing whatever they want to do, and then they get to be a utility, just like an electrical utility is regulated. In this case, the government does have a say, so they have a degree of confidence, and they can be directive. The flip side of that, Claudia, is that then that entity has to prioritize the, the use cases and the things that government needs it to do. So if there are 500 things that it wants to do as a use case to exchange data, and the government is saying, I'm sorry, it's a pandemic, <laughs> this is what we actually need you to prioritize more than anything else, they drop that because that is their mission. Are there examples of states you'd point to telling a little bit of a, 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 ca- a case in point of that kind of model and how it works? One entity on the spectrum might be Sync Health, which is the health information exchange for Nebraska and Iowa. Sync Health's role in Nebraska is very much regulated by its legislature. There's been a lot of enacting legislation that put them front and center on a lot of public health, particularly data collection. And then they also support the exchange of information in support of Medicaid managed care. So they have that sort of reinforcing legislation. They have all of those state folks on their boards and directing their work because they had all the connections with the providers and the labs and all of those entities. They stood up a COVID dashboard within three weeks that looked better than most of any of the other ones I saw even six months later in the country, where they were able to show where the positivity was, how many beds were available, how many respirators were available. Another example might be CRISP, you know, in Maryland and the surrounding region, the way that they move the data in support of the all-payer model to make sure that, you know, the providers have the information that they need and the hospitals have the information that they need to calibrate their services since they have a very unique payment model. You know, it's become part of the uh, scaffolding that is necessary for that um, ecosystem to operate. 
and people just take it as a given. In both those cases, I think they're, they're underutilized. I think there's more that they could do. Another interesting example, Contexture, which is the HIU for Colorado and Arizona. In Arizona, they have started to use the Health Information Exchange to help support um, the age-blind disabled renewals and applications, where you have to demonstrate that you actually have a condition, right, a disability. Well, the HIE has data that can demonstrate that. So instead of you having to collect paperwork from your provider to support that, the state can use the HIE data where possible to reduce the provider and the patient burden. And I love that. So I think there's some really interesting use cases that are coming up. But again, that wouldn't work if it wasn't a statewide entity. It wouldn't work if the state didn't sit in some directive way and say to them, we want you to have these connections. We want you to prioritize this interface so that our eligibility workers can get this data quickly. And this is what we need. Those are such great examples. Yeah. I'm always struck by the one in Indiana where I high, which I think historically didn't have as close a relationship with its state government, but also has this incredible relationship with the Regenstrief Institute, which is one of our gems for medical informatics. They got named as the authoritative tool to determine whether somebody was actually a COVID case or not. And then overnight, they were able to change the case definition as the epi of the disease evolved. So imagine if you wanted to change a case definition, you were working with like thousands of sites and they were able to just take the loink-coded lab results and say, oh, well, since we've changed the definition, this one's a case and this one's not a case, which is another benefit for having sort of this middleware that's very neutral and allows you to really move, uh, not change at all of the endpoints, but change in a more uniform way in the center. Back to your CRISP example, when they were negotiating that kind of favored relationship with the state, they've always been supported by them, but it's evolved over the years. And one of the things they built into the bylaws was that if CRISP started not focusing on state purposes, the state had the ability to basically blow up their board. And because that's so disruptive, of course, there's going to be a lot of effort to avoid that because who would want to have your whole organization upended because things kind of were getting off on a bad track? Right. But think about the accountability there as opposed to if it was a vendor that had responded to an RFP. There they want to keep your business, but you're, they don't worry that you're going to blow up their board. And if they have you in kind of a vendor lock situation, you're kind of stuck. What are they going to do? They can charge you whatever they want to charge you because there's the pain of disruption. You have to go to RFP again. But if it's a an entity like a CRISP or like one of the ones we're de- describing, you know there are investments, people's time invested in directionally guiding where those entities are going. And it's a very different paradigm, very different governance model. As I think it's intuitively obvious why Medicaid is focusing on on social care, because if you're someone who has a, a, a variety of human needs that aren't being met, it's really hard to get to the, the medical pieces that maybe would also help you. This means potentially a lot more collection of data. It means potentially a lot more linking of data. So there might be a record that shows not just my medical care that I got, but also what my human needs are. And I think there's a rising dialogue about the potential harms that could come from that data, especially if we don't 
in advance think about what the guardrails need to be or what the governance needs to be for the data? And this is a big question. I'd love for you to, though, to help tease that apart a little bit. What are the risks? What are the ways in which state uh, policymakers should be thinking about that? Are there any examples where states have really grappled with this? It is a really important question, but the risks are really clear, right, is that this is data that tells you a lot more about the vulnerabilities people have and the things that, in many cases, like we're not collecting the good stuff, right? We're not asking questions about who eats five servings of fruits and vegetables a day. We're asking about the barriers and the obstacles. So the first thing that I think about in terms of risk is it's not a balanced picture of who people are. You've distilled the social determinants only to the negative social determinants. So we are collecting a predominantly negative set of information around, in this case, populations that are already low-income, you know, disabled, elderly, pregnant, whatever it might be. Like, they're already struggling by definition. The fact that it's not clear who owns that data, if they move to another state, do they take that data with them? If the state has engaged a an outside vendor to collect that information and try and collect, uh, refer those people to care. If they switch vendors, where does that data go? What, if anything, does the care management services offered by a managed care plan get to access of that data or supplement it? What if the person switches plans? This question of, of ownership and portability is important. And so when you understand who owns the data, you also understand who is responsible for the quality and the recency of that data. So it it starts to worry me that lack of ownership also could lead to a lack of confidence in that data. And then what ends up happening is I'm just going to ask you again, if I don't trust that the data that was shared with me is, is recent, well, then we're back to where we were with clinical data again, where even though my record tells me you had this vaccine, I'm still going to ask you, well, that's time I could have spent asking you something I don't know, or even better, you could have been asking me, your provider, something you want to know or have a question about. With the limited interaction between patients and providers, so I don't think anybody is wrestling with this adequately. I think everybody is wrestling with it, and so I see states taking little bites at different places along that spectrum. But I don't think anybody has um, owned the whole journey. And most worrisome to me out of all of this is that there is no federal owner. Right. Let's talk about that for a minute. We should go back. What is that? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. neither of us are back in the federal government anymore. But just for, for folks listening, like what, what do you mean by that? And what would a solution look like? Right. So when it's clinical data, it's, it was very clear, either HIPAA through the Office of Civil Rights or clinical data that needed to be moved one place to the other through CMS regulations that were crafted in partnership with ONC that set the standards on like what the the tools were to collect and share that information. Like there was some understanding of the clinical information. So when I say there's no ownership, it means to me there isn't a federal agency or department even that recognizes that they have or believes or asserts that they have some kind of legal authority to set boundaries to say, well, if Jess tells somebody that she's had exposure to partner violence, she owns that data. She gets to determine who it's shared with. It moves with her. It is tied to her through uh, back to a master person index, right? Like who, 
who is actually setting that, who's going to write that regulation, um, who's going to tell state Medicaid agencies or any entity for that matter, Medicare Advantage plans, whoever's working on this, who's going to tell them what the guardrails are around collection, around sharing, around ownership, you know, without somebody who feels like they can assert authority, those are the gaps. And again, government's risk averse. So nobody wants to lean over their skis here and say that they have legal authority and then they don't either, A, have the authority, there isn't consensus, they have the authority, they're not resourced to do this work. It's not like there's an abundance of federal employees who have nothing else to do right now, right? So are they resourced to take this on? Like, I get it. I see you with eyes wide open why we are where we are. I just still think it's unacceptable. And just for listeners who aren't as HIPAA deep as unfortunately both Jess and I are, remember that HIPAA governs specific entities, so covered entities and their business associates. Um, That would be a health plan. That would be a provider. But many of these community-based organizations or platforms won't even be considered business associates depending on the structure of the program. And so what that means is HIPAA doesn't apply except in the context of those specific entities. Once the data that that entity collects goes outside of that framework, it is also no longer protected. And this is true also for consumer tech. I think HIPAA was designed to take advantage of a willingness to do something in the medical space, purposefully not taking on the world. But in a world like the U.S., where we have very specific privacy rules around HIPAA, and then some around other federal programs, but essentially nothing except maybe an FTC enforcement of a privacy notice, you know, it, it, huge gaps are revealed across the board. So I think I think this is a really huge space. Maybe I'll just touch on one more interoperability thing before we get to our closing questions. So I recently interviewed Sachin Jain, who was a colleague of ours when we worked together. I was at ONC working on Health Information Exchange, and Jess was leading a lot of the tech and Medicaid work at the foundation of EHR adoption and a health information exchange. And such an asked a question, which I didn't have a ready answer to, I've thought a lot about, which was, what was our unfinished business from those days? And what would you do about that now? So I'll ask you that question. I actually have a very ready answer for that, that became apparent to me really early on, but maybe didn't understand how to fix it or address it. And that's that we completely missed the user. We completely missed user-centered design. We focused on functionality and not performance and experience. And so we had these providers who would scream at us about how their certified technology could do the things we said it needed to do, but it took you know 50 clicks and ruined their ability to have eye contact with their patients because it took them so long to navigate. So with the benefit of hindsight, we were talking about technology. We were talking about users of technology. We didn't have a vocabulary of user-centered design or human-centered design. It wasn't something that we talked about at the time. And we missed that and or we minimized it to say it would work itself out, that only the tools that, sure, we can certify all these tools for functionality, but the only ones that are going to persist in the market are those that also 
optimize for our usability and performance. So we thought the market would shake itself out. But the reality is, I think that it hasn't because the inertia against switching to a whole new system, once you've converted everything to one and brought your whole shop on board and everybody's trained, there's no way you're going to be like, ah, it's not so usable. I know you guys find it to be really annoying. So like, let's scrap the whole thing and, you know, go to a whole different EHR. It just doesn't work that way. So people just keep hoping that the one they have will get better. Medicaid's the same way, right? We have these great eligibility systems, great in air quotes, that are all about compliance. Are you making an accurate eligibility decision? The fact that it might take you 75 minutes to apply doesn't mean that you don't have a a system that CMS has certified. They have, you know, I, I can say they, we certified technology for Medicaid that had a horrible user experience still has a horrible user experience. The fact that they weren't mobile responsive, the fact that you had to wait on the phone when the call center to do a password reset, which may have taken you hours to wait, the fact that you couldn't do document upload, or there were some places that you could only upload a PDF. Okay. That means you have to have PDF, an app that converts whatever to a PDF on here. You know, you couldn't upload a photograph. Like these are all things that are, you know, 2021, 2022, probably I'm going to cringe and say some places, 2023 examples. So I think we, we missed that boat on high tech and it's a really hard pivot to make now this far in and, and it's pervasive. It's, it's in government technology. And then, and again, to be fair to, to my current and former colleagues, you know, we're judged by compliance. There are rules and do you follow them? And as long as user experience is not one of those rules, that, that will always be extra sprinkles on the cake, but not the cake itself. Yeah, it's such a great question. And I, I'm i going to be spending a lot of time thinking about that, which is how do you both raise all boats, which is kind of more compliance-driven you want all of them to be able to capture blood pressure. Well, yes, you do. I mean, that's not optional. And be standards-based and be able to exchange. And at the same time, support a fluid, natural, engaged patient experience. Because I think those two things are are actually at the crux of what makes that hard, which is you have to be able to exchange the information. Therefore, all the data has to be standardized. Therefore, there has to be a way to extract it, right? All of that speaks to a very engineering kind of focused way to look at it. And what you're talking about is an experience. Interesting. Well, because if we were judging ourselves on whether this country is healthier as a result of having adopted electronic health records, I don't know what grade we get. I don't think it would be an A or a B. I think it would be lower than that. (laughs) And in fact, that would be true for so many of the policies that we've been talking about. And it's hard. Okay. You know, as a, as somebody who vaguely remembers her biostats class. I know there's attribution problems to that statement and maybe you can't associate our efforts, good or bad, with a particular outcome. But I do think that the premise we all went into, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed, is that the electronic collection of data would actually improve health outcomes. It would reduce the risk of errors and it would put data in providers' fingertips in a way that supported decisions, clinical decision support, and better patient care. I think we all believe that. I think there are examples of where that has helped. Um, But I also think people would agree that in many cases, the provider-patient interaction has degraded and that providers don't feel like these tools were designed for their use as opposed to for data capture. We share uh, many 
overlaps in our background. One of the ones that goes back a few years is we were both in the Peace Corps. And I think it's a touch point for both of us in our lives and the way we think about our work. What's a lesson you learned in the Peace Corps that you've taken throughout your life? I'll I'll give you one that is healthcare related and one that is personal that I actually just talked about with my kids yesterday on a hike. And I actually raised this one. So the one that was healthcare related, when I got to um, Niger, the country that I served in, and we were in training, we had a local trainer who was showing us some health information or health education materials. And they explained to us that for people who are not literate to see a health information educational pamphlet or something that just showed a part of a body, like just showed a hand or just showed a head was a little jarring because like, where's the rest of the person, right? Like, so the, the perspective, these, these materials were not um, acceptable in the perspective of um, the people who they were meant for, even though they were in theory designed for them, they were, I think, WHO materials. And so it was immediately this idea of trying to see it from their eyes and seeing this like disemboweled hand <laughs> just sort of, like, floating on a page. Like, you know, like it just never would have occurred to me that that would have been startling to somebody. Now I always think, well, what does this look like to them? Um, that something that I take for granted as being an acceptable way um, of saying something or showing something may not be true in their point of view. So that was one. And that was like, you know, week two of my Peace Corps training. The other one was on a personal level was within, I think, maybe six or nine months of getting there. I had an event where I was traveling to another village. I had to take a bush taxi and it was going to be pretty far away. And the head of the little clinic that I was working at asked me if I would take his five or six-year-old daughter with me to take to his parents who lived in that village. Just drop her off, let her see her grandparents for the day, and then bring her back. This was like a four-hour bush taxi ride. So I said, sure. And so I took her. And on the way back, it was nighttime and the bush taxi broke down. And it was pitch black and no moon. And she's like five or six. And she was like asleep in my lap. And from the get-go. And so when it when that broke down, everybody just got out of the bush taxi and started walking through the fields because they somehow knew where they were going. I had no idea where I was going. And I had this child that I had to carry that I was responsible for. So the long and short of this is that I always tell my kids that day, that night, carrying Indede down that road to her family, responsible for her in the middle of nowhere where I didn't know where I was going. I didn't know if I was safe, I didn't know if I was going the right way. I just knew I had to carry her, even though she was it, that was physically challenging. I knew I had to get there and get her safe. It created a level of confidence in my ability to endure something, anything that has never gone away. And so, and she died a couple of years later from malaria, but like my kids know her name. If they ask you, like, what was the time that their mother realized how strong she was and that she could do anything she could remind you, they will say caring and dead like they say her name. And it's very important to me that they know her name. And I, when I talk to other Peace Corps volunteers, I think that is the thing. We all have this reinforced spine of strength that comes from having not just endured something, but also having witnessed people who endure a hundred times worse than that all day, every day, and with a grace and a resilience that we could only aspire to. And you you don't, in a positive way, you don't recover from that.
data really is the foundation for whole person health, but we need to collect and share that data in a responsible way. And the reality is that the needed data and governance infrastructure is quite nascent in many states. So I strongly agree with Jess's point that states should partner with the data networks that already have the infrastructure, governance, and broad relationships to help turn data into meaningful impact across the U.S. This podcast was created by me, Claudia Williams. My podcast producer is Avery Moore-Kloss. Check out the show notes for more background on Jess Kahn and her work. And there is additional information on my background, this podcast, and our guests on our website, www.theother80.com. Until next time, I'm Claudia Williams.